0: Welcome to the film comment podcast. My name is Nicholas Rapold and I'm the editor-in-chief of film comment. Some weeks on the podcast, we like to go back in time. This week, we're jumping back to a peculiar moment in history, the summer of 2001. 2001 might not be a summer many of us are nostalgic about, mostly because of September 11th around the corner. But as far as we knew at the time, it was just another chance to get out of the heat and into a movie theater. For this discussion, we tried to capture what was special about this moment, the personal experience of a formative year for many of us, and maybe what it meant for film culture too. 2001 was the year of Mulholland Drive, but also Rush Hour 2. For this trip down memory lane, I was joined by Eliza Ma, head programmer at Metrograph in New York, and Michael Koreski, the editorial and creative director at the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Here's our conversation. So this week on the Film Comment Podcast, we're going to do a year, a very significant year for some of us, for all of us. It's the year 2001, uh, famous from stage and screen. Uh, also famous in real life. Uh, In the past, we've done podcasts where we've looked at films from a certain year. I think we did 1967, and we looked back 50 years ago, you know, where the idea of a summer movie came from. Uh, In this case, I think maybe the source for this idea was just the strangeness without knowing it was strange about the summer of 2001 just uh, on various national, <laughs> international fronts, uh, given that was what, what was to come. But also just personally, I think it, felt, it ended up being an interesting time um, for, for depending, I don't know, I guess on your age, and this is where we all <laughs> maybe get uh, separated. But anyway, to, to dig into this, this question of, of, uh, of the summer of 2001, I'm pleased to be
1: joined by...
2: Elisa Ma, Head of Programming at Metrograph.
1: Michael Koreski, director of editorial at the Film Society of Lincoln Center. And uh, what we've done is we've we've kind of
0: gone off and and rewatched some formative film from our summers of 2001 uh, and relived those traumas, whatever they may be. We'll reveal them later. Um, but I, I thought we'd just start maybe with talking about our general impressions of, of that time and and you know what what was what was odd about it. Um, I mean, obviously the. The elephant in the room is September 11th, coming right after that summer, um, which I guess somewhat notoriously was a surprise, (laughs) but also not a surprise in
1: some ways.
2: I'm curious to know where you guys were at the turn of the millennium.
1: Oh, now we're heading back a little bit? Yeah, (laughs) just
2: as a prequel.
1: I was in New Orleans. I actually went to visit a friend in New Orleans and... um, we, we ended up staying in, <laughs> strangely. Oh God. <laughs> and, you know, there was all that Y2K fever, all those fears, and, um, you know, nothing nothing terrible came to pass, but it was it was actually pretty low-key for a, for a Y2K celebration. What about you?
2: Uh, I was in the suburbs of Ontario um, going into my second year of high school, I believe. Maybe it was the first year of high school. And my friend had gotten into her dad's stash and we had smoked a blunt, (laughs) rolled for the very first time (laughs) by my friend who didn't know how to roll. And later on thought we were super high, but then the next day realized that it was actually oregano
1: <laughs> oh yeah. The yeah. old but, oregano. Trick. Yeah,
2: exactly. So but we were we were jumping around outside and heckling at cars and we had drank maybe like a mickey of uh Malibu rum and we're just generally acting like it was literally the end of the world. Wow, yeah.
0: so it was like the perfect placebo effect. Exactly. De- demonstration yeah. or or really good oregano.
2: <laughs> that yeah. oregano was sick.
0: Um yeah, I don't know I I wish I had as good a story. I think I was probably just at home trying to back out my email or something. Um, that was not a very exciting year,
1: <laughs> but also ahead of your time there. If you're yeah, doing that in the turn you of the You guys are both
2: so responsible.
0: <laughs> yeah, either that or just I don't know, having lots of omelets or something. Um, this is kind of <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, somewhat. Uh, <laughs> Depressing, without intending to, <laughs> I thought that September 11th would be depressing, but um, anyway. I
2: thought that was the sort of like you know the high before the. That's
0: true. Well, hello. well, but it but it was also a strange a strange year because I mean 2000 you also had the Florida recount, but I mean I, I think what was interesting is feeling how the movies were or weren't a place you could go to to get away from or to see any of this reflected in in in, in any way or any of this feeling this strange. Two thousand, you know, post nineties. I don't know. Well, I also think States because is.
1: because that whole um, you know, the fever that was whipped up around this Y two K doomsday, computers are shutting down, the you know, humanities we know it's going to change, which was obviously for anyone who was there at the time, we knew it was just conspiracy and crazy and paranoia. But because it just kind did of did we? I think most <laughs> of us probably did. Maybe not you, Lisa. I'm pretty sure my computer crashed. But because of <laughs> backing up all your emails, but because because everything just, you know, went off without a hitch. I think there was just through even through to the summer of 2001, there was this kind of sense that everything was just fine. Everything was moving along as it should. The new millennium was here. There was nothing to fear that, you know, the famous year 2001, the year of the space odyssey was coming and going. Nothing to worry about, of course, um, this turned out not to be true. No, the computers would
0: take over eventually. I mean, I, I, I guess the, the like one of the films that often comes to mind when thinking about sep- September 11th or, or that period, as usual, David Lynch kind of taking an, an X-ray without knowing it, um, the way Mulholland Drive, everything about that seems so contingent and, and serendipitous and then just absolutely right on for, for a mood you might have of, of, you know, total nightmare fragmentation and getting blindsided.
1: And definitely a film that, um, even though it was very clearly and very um, beautifully and heavily, when I say heavy, I mean literally the weight of the camera shot on film, um, it definitely looks ahead towards a more digital type of filmmaking, digital editing, just the way that it just keeps morphing and changing. And it just seems like anything could happen at any point. And I, that, that movie was, um, Actually, I did see in the summer of two thousand one, even though it didn't come out till October, because I got to go to an advanced screening. So, the, so since we're now back to the summer of two thousand one, yes. um, there actually were there were two films that I saw. During that summer, Mulholland Drive and AI, which remain two of my favorite films of all time. I think they are two of the greatest films of all time, Um, but they had such a profound effect on me that once I saw them, it was basically all that was going on in my head the entire summer. And I I went back and I looked at the list of movies that I saw in 2001, and it's a lot of movies, and I can read (laughs) that list at some point because I kept my diary. I always kept my movie diary of everything I saw in the theater. Um, and I, I remember seeing half of them. I actually had to go back and look at what on earth, what is Atlantis? And I found out that it was a Disney animated feature. I literally don't remember it exists or what happens in it, but apparently I saw it.
2: Did you see swordfish? I never saw swordfish, but I I don't know if I saw it,
0: but I I feel like I saw it because I felt the poster
1: was um, ubiquitous. I don't even know why. But, every, but everything was dwarfed by the experiences of AI and Mulholland Drive. They seemed like they were auguring something different in, in what was to come, both in film and in the world. Um, and AI, of course, really lingers in the mind because of that one shot of the submerged New York um, towards the end where you actually right. see the Twin Towers poking out of the water, which is probably one of the great and most ironic of all images that you can still see of the twin towers because the point of the shot is that you know thousands and thousands and thousands of years into the future after the ice caps have melted after new york sees underwater the only thing that will be left are the are the twin towers I and mean, it's really powerful and strange to watch and i actually remember because i saw the film many times i'm not gonna say how many okay i'll tell you i saw it six times in the theater and the last time I saw it was actually post nine eleven because it was still playing. So it opened, I believe, at the end of June, and I kept going to see it in different theaters with different people, and then, and then finally just myself. <laughs> and then <laughs> I think by the sixth time I had seen it, it was it was like September sixteenth or seventeenth. Like I, it, it, the movie, the movie was such a like an emotionally jarring, but also kind of a weird balm. Um, experience for me that I had to see it one last time before it was gone. And I'm seeing that shot of New York City was so overwhelming. Um, Is something that really stayed with me. And then actually when you it goes... You were in New York. Sorry? You were in New York City watching this. I was in New York, yes. Actually... I was in a movie theater that no longer exists, which was a multiplex that used to live underneath in the basement, far below the Virgin Megastore in Times Square. Um, I saw the movie in many theaters, but that was the last place I saw it, and that's the place that I saw it after 9-11. And actually, looking back at movies that I'd seen the summer of 2001, I realized some of these, a lot of these theaters don't exist anymore. I saw Moulin Rouge at the Ziegfeld. Mm. Um, so I saw AI at this weird Virgin Megastore multiplex, and I saw um, Kiyoshi Kurosawa's Cure at the screening room which was which was the oh, theater that uh, is now that the corner it's, it's like kind of, Tribeca it's yeah. like part of the Tribeca yeah the Tribeca festival, right uh, but it was called the screening room Complex. at that point just the screening yeah. room um, and I remember Kiyoshi Kurosawa's Cure just played for months and months there it was this oh. art house hit
0: yeah and 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 Elisa, how about you Were your your memories
2: you know grew up in the suburbs of Toronto on North York Ontario um, which is Greater Toronto area and. You know, I had these pretty strict immigrant parents who, um, I don't know if people out there can really relate to this. I, I'm sure people can. You know, for, for really hardworking immigrant parents, um, particularly Asian immigrant parents, they don't really stress the importance of, you know, entertainment as education or escape for for children it was seen as pretty frivolous thing to go to the movie theater and spend you know however much it would maybe like eight or ten bucks back then mm-hmm. to watch something and come home with nothing to show for it you know it's the one product that at least back then you know unless you were buying a vhs it was the one product that you couldn't take home with you mm-hmm. um right. so my parents never wanted me to go to the movies. So I always had to wait until everything came out on VHS and then go to Blockbuster. And I was allowed one movie rental per week. And that sort of determined... uh, my viewing schedule. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know uh, anything about the award seasons. I didn't know anything about release, uh, you know, summer releases versus right. January releases. Um, you know, I think back then I was somewhat aware of the quote unquote art house hits like Eat Mama Ten Bien or like Amelie and yeah. films like that. But to me, you know, 2001 was just these massive billboards of, like early franchises from the studios for yes. like like the first Shrek I remember that was a movie that my parents deemed like okay for me to go see in the movie theater for some reason
1: never mind it's caustic humor it's <laughs> exactly. shocking it's shocking yeah. Eddie, deconstruction of fairy tales and yeah. you're
2: rooting for the underdog yeah. of course um Harry Potter I like hated that so I you know didn't want to go see it uh Jurassic Park always loved dinosaurs always loved Jurassic yeah, Park in Jurassic, Jurassic park, park 3
1: and it was on my list of things that I saw and, and I don't remember watching it. I don't know what happens in Jurassic Park 3. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I kind of know what happens in Jurassic Park <laughs> more, <they laughs> dinosaurs and they chase more people. More park.
2: They're all different parts of one great masterpiece. So, yeah, that's yeah. right. <laughs> American Pie 2, which was too lurid oh, wow. for for uh, 15-year-old me. Too lurid? So? Too lurid. <laughs> <laughs> Scary Movie 2, which I've, I've, oh. I think of those two as like two sides of the same coin.
1: Yeah, um, Were these all films that you ended up watching From blockbuster wrinkles?
2: Uh No, till this day I've not seen either one <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> So were there any things that you were able to go see Or you just were never allowed to go to um, the movie theater? No,
2: I, I, I did go see Rush Hour 2 Which we'll talk about, I think, yes, later After um, the break I, I saw Hannibal, which was really scary for me at the time. Oh, yeah.
0: That, that one was... There were some alarming little things in there.
2: Uh, yeah. Just yeah. never really thought about eating people before that movie. Yeah. But now you think about it all the time. Now <laughs> I think literally all I think about... I remember an <laughs> it experience... It just imprinted me in a way that I Going know, to see Hannibal, there was a...
1: I don't know if it was a babysitter or a mother, but there were these two very little kids who were in the theater watching Hannibal, and they were... Like actually saying I want to go home, and she was like, "Shut up and watch the movie." And it was so <laughs> distracting that I, like little little kids that I couldn't concentrate on the film. Which, not that I liked the film, didn't have to concentrate on it, but right. it was pretty sad. Wow. Yeah, I, it was funny.
0: Uh, what you were just saying that you know you were there, some of the things you were watching were these art house like dutiful because that also came up when I was looking at my list. You know whatever, you know the the nerdy nucleus of who I am <laughs> now. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, you know, I was dutifully watching whatever art house things were showing up at like uh, theaters around around New York. I, things that you might not other otherwise be watching unless like.
2: What was I, your regular multiplex?
0: I did. I was spoiled. I grew up spoiled uh, in, in in New York, and, uh, so I I was just. You know, at that time, uh, you know there are a ton of theaters on the Upper East Side. Um, you know, in Midtown, you had the giant Astor place. That's actually where I saw Two Thousand One last. Was it released uh, there? me too.
1: That re-release. It was around New Year's. Yeah. Oh yeah. my God. What an Wait, experience!
0: I, I saw it with seven Swiss tourists, and the rest of the theater was empty. It just <laughs> seemed apocalyptic. And uh, yeah, but there were so I didn't. I didn't have like a go to um, multiplex. I did go to the Angelica a lot on Houston. And at one point there was an Angelica on 57th Street, which the Angelica 57, which I think I saw Search and Destroy there. Uh, but that was early 90s. We've already <laughs> gone further back, already dating and aging myself. Uh, but yeah, but I yeah I remember seeing these these things that I'm not sure I would like. The Taylor of Panama, the John Borman movie that that summer I think that, that I saw there. I think that was John Borman and others others like that. That, that kind of sense of dutifully seeing things—that's still maybe the phase one, one is in. I mean, I have to admire it. You know, a lot of the younger critics that are coming up now who are <laughs> watching all this good stuff. Um, and you know,
1: I, I don't know, well, yeah. But I mean, I'm re- really interested in the in the difference. I mean, we, we we first started talking about this a little just because, you know, it's the end of August. It's an ex- you know extraordinarily. Sweaty and uncomfortable August in New York. And um, one of the things that used to be, at least for me, and I don't mean to sound like a crank at my old age, um, but one of the things that used to save me during summers like that was wonderfully air conditioned movie theaters. And I would be happy to go see middle brow uh, studio pictures, um, some really fun brainless blockbusters, some Sundance holdovers, some, I mean, and then some like really great art house films at the same time and so you know i'd end up going to a lot of movies and i'm sure that that is still a possibility but i counted 26 movies that i saw between june and early september when i looked back at my film diary and how many times have i been to the movies this summer maybe four that's going to be bleeped out (laughs) (laughs) um in terms of paying in terms of like going on a weekend paying to see something yeah New and exciting. I just it's 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 really a drag looking at what's out there. I I yeah. I don't again. I don't want to just sound like a an old crank, but <laughs> I think that there's a like, sig- everybody knows this right. There's a significant dip, dip in quality at least with the with blockbusters. What, what a summer blockbuster is. Um, there is nothing that even. Approaches the level of an AI, artificial intelligence, of course. Not that there ever really was, but I would say you would usually get one or two big budget movies in the summer that were a little more intellectually minded, a little more ambitious, a little more beautiful. And um, refer, of what course am I forgetting Zoolander. this year? Yes. And Zoolander, which was a, I think was a right before nine eleven release, like oh, maybe yeah. the week before, or like right around that time. Yeah. Um,
0: I don't know seeing Our Song um, that classic Evolution the Ivan Reitman classic oh man
1: I mean there are films like I, I, like I remember the, there's a French um, film Sebastian Lifshitz's Come Undone which is like a, kind of mm-hmm. a great classic French gay coming of age movie that I went to see at, at the quad I believe the old quad um, and that was kind of an interesting formative experience I remember Jim McKay's Our Song Francois yep. Ozan's Under the Sand um, the Iranian film The Day Became a Woman um, Meshkini, I think is, is her name. Um, there were just a lot of really interesting smaller movies and they're mixed in with, you know, the sexy beasts, <laughs> which I saw and, and the Woody yes. Allen's indelible, the curse of the Jade Scorpion. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it was always something that was always something that I, that I was happy to, to check out, but it maybe it says more about my, um my general beleaguered, beleagueredness <laughs> that I'm not as daringly seeking them out. But I'm sure there have been a couple yeah. things this summer that I've enjoyed. I enjoyed yeah. Mission Impossible, Mission Impossible
2: uh, Fallout. Yeah. That was oh, always good. That was fun. Yeah. yeah.
0: It might be a bit of nostalgia at, at work. I, I, think, I think that's probably true for me, at, at least.
2: Unfriended Dark Web is, to my mind, the... Uh, That's a standout. 2018 summer movie of the year. I'm yeah. sorry that
1: I missed it, but I also kind of, and please correct me if I'm wrong about this. I also feel like I should be waiting for home to watch that. I, I loved the first Unfriended and I saw it at home and the experience was so terrifying and intimate and appropriate to watch it at home that I didn't know if I should rush out and see it you in the theater. you watch
2: it on your laptop? <laughs> we wa- No,
1: we watched it on the TV and we watched it with our dog and she was very, very upset by it because of all the screaming and crying. Mm-hmm. Um, and usually, I mean, the face that she made—we we, we took a photo of it to capture it because it was—it haunts our dreams. Oh, our so you can't wait to, to
2: recreate that for your puppy.
1: Yeah, I mean, she'll be unhappy when we, when we see it again. But it's just—we have to continue the trend. But speaking
0: of the web, of course, you know, 2000, 2001, two thousand one—not quite the same, uh, you know, social presence of of web, much less in in um, in, in movies, really, uh, you know, mainstream movies. I don't know. I guess you had a sort of web. Uh, well, we have multiplicity with something like time code, but um, I, I don't know. Other than that, like a movie that's more emblematic of, of that moment is, is Ghost World, which is, you know, so much about like, so retrospective and about preserving this analog legacy before that, that got marketed as such and, and, and branded as such. I mean, that movie is such an amazing encapsulation of, of a certain moment and a number of types. I mean, it's like a work of cultural criticism. Yeah, Ghost absolutely. World. That, was a, that was a big movie, I think, for me. Um, I don't
1: know. Yeah, same here. There, I mean, that's, I think there are so many lines from that film that just are always floating around in my head. Yeah. I think the way that it kind of had this, you know, sort of bemused, slightly angry, cockeyed view of things Maybe yeah. started to inform the way that I started <laughs> to see things, yeah. um, and like whenever I, whenever I go anywhere that I find slightly depressing or. Um, depressing in like a mainstream homogenized way like something that just feels very American like if I go to a strip mall somewhere like I think of Ghost World or if I go to like a prefabricated apartment I think of Ghost World you know when Scarlett Johansson and Thora Birch are like looking around for a place to live after they graduate and Scarlett Johansson is trying to get Thora Birch to be really excited and Thora Birch is why do you want me to be be excited about living in a depressing shithole in the middle of nowhere (laughs) I think of that line every every time I'm anywhere (laughs) I just think that it, it really tapped into something yeah that spoke to me at a certain point in my life like seeing the world differently
2: yeah absolutely and it 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 showed in a way that it was okay to be a, a misfit at a time when you know popular culture was so dominated by these like very perfect looking you know teen idols it, yeah, it became this voice inside my head as well, yeah. having lived as I did in the suburbs, very yeah. depressing suburbs of uh, northern Ontario.
0: Yeah. And, and also like a movie that kind of looks forward and looks backward in that way. Like yeah. it's it's I mean, now we're just, you know, drowning in like robotic repetitions of the idea that being a misfit is, is OK. Now that's that's like that's standard comes standard with every other movie Um I, I, and so, I mean, th- that's how it look. you know, it, it sort of minted that in, in in a very nice way. In, in another way, I kind of look backward, it's 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 almost like a latecomer. It's almost like a perfect distillation of, of like, I don't know, late 90s irony, just when it was reaching a kind of nihilistic phase. The combination of Terry Zwigoff and Daniel Close. And Daniel Close was kind of a perfect, perfect match for like recouping irony as as something more than just like a disposable self-defense but but mm. something more like a i don't know like like
1: a um, i don't know productive ethos self-protective but still meaningful there's something really heart-wrenching about that movie yeah there's something yeah. the, and the way that they interact with each other the Steve Buscemi and the Thor Birch character yeah, um and yeah. then the way that that's kind of set off by the Thor Birch and Scarlett Johansson relationship dissolving i, I felt every moment of it and i think it also it this i haven't mentioned but summer of 2001 was my first summer out of college i know that movie is the, about the first summer out of high school but it still had oh, this yeah. resonance for me like i was kind of in the city i was out on my own the future was a big question mark and it's a weird movie because it's inspiring at the same time that it's incredibly yeah. grim. Yeah. Um, and that very ambiguous shot of her off in the bus at the end just felt like... I, I saw it movie three times in the theater, I think, because I had to keep on experiencing its point of view. Like, how often do yeah. you go back to movies over and over again just because you want to kind of live in its philosophy? Yeah. And I feel like you don't see that a lot these days. There's nothing There's there's nothing easy or prefab about it. Yeah. No,
0: I I absolutely agree with that. Um, I think maybe we'll take a a little break here, um, and and when we come back, we'll talk about some of the films that we went back and rewatched as we tried to relive our youth. Well, not just that, but more in a bit.
1: The Film Comment podcast is hitting the
2: road this fall. Starting next week, our critics will be reporting from the big fall festivals on the best and brightest movies coming out soon. Join us as we preview the movies at Venice and Toronto that you'll hear about during awards season, like the new Coen Brothers movie or the hotly anticipated Roma. We'll also be spotlighting the movies that everyone should be talking about, but aren't. The Film Comment Podcast at Venice, Toronto and beyond. Listen in.
0: And we are back. So what we did is, you know, once in a while, of course, we give ourselves a little bit of homework and we, we go home and watch something. And for our 2001, the, the year, not the movie, our 2001 podcast, we did that. Uh, Elisa, what, what did you watch?
2: I treated myself to a reviewing of Rush Hour 2, yes. a.k.a. the high watermark of the Rush Hour <laughs> franchise. Oh, was <is> it? <laughs> for the very first time since seeing it in 2001. It well, was now, one of the rare movies I got to see in the movie theater because but, my father loves uh, Jackie Chan. Oh, that's
0: great. Yeah, I was just about to ask what the exact conditions were if you're originally seeing it. <laughs> and, the, yeah.
2: and, of course, um, there are certain lines in the film that flooded back to my mind right away. <laughs> so for those who haven't seen it, so the film finds Carter, played by Chris Tucker, and Lee, played yeah. by Jackie Chan, in Hong Kong. Hmm. Um, apparently, only four days have lapsed uh, since in the, the diegetic reality of the Rush Hour universe <laughs> since the first one. That's
0: kind of brilliant, actually. Randomly, yeah.
2: Um, this time, Carter is uh, in Hong Kong. He's about to take a vacation. He needs a break, you know. And so he's expecting Lee to show him around, show him hmm. the fun stuff. And, of course, the two of them, you know, walk in. To a place, and right away there's trouble. There's there are two people who've been killed at the American embassy, mm. and so you know they they get you know dragged along this series of uh, misadventures and finally prove to be heroes, you know, who bust the bad guys in the end. Mm. Um, and so the film takes place in Hong Kong, and LA, and Vegas. Huh. And you know you watch it now. And it's really just so it's kind there's something very moving about how it just wears all of the sort of absurdisms and Mm. and and the follies and the and the hopes and dreams (laughs) harbored (laughs) by the, you know, by the early odds of political anxiety, racial anxiety, of course, uh, but also um, late capitalism. You know, all these things are sort of chafing up against each other in the film in a really sort of like awkward way in retrospect. (laughs) Uh Um, But it's also hilarious. For instance, like it's so politically incorrect and like everything about it is so, (laughs) (laughs) I mean, for instance, in the very first scene, Chris Tucker is driving with um, Jackie Chan and he's like, I want some Mooshu, referring to the girls that he wants to meet.
1: And oh, oh not the food, and
2: shoot, he's but got the girls. no. I mean, analogous <laughs> of, but yes, girls. And uh, <laughs> at at a certain point, he stops. The car stops at a red light, and he's in the front seat. And Jackie's driving. He looks over. There's a there's a car full of pretty ladies. Um, and a very early on screen appearance by Maggie Q. Um, she doesn't have any lines. They look over at, (laughs) at Chris Tucker and they're like, kind of bewildered by him, you know? And he, he has a Chinese dictionary and he starts just spewing (laughs) gibberish at them, which is like supposed to be, it's supposed to say, you know, was like a pickup line, but, but they just drive away without saying anything. Uh Oh. And Jackie Chan's like, what the hell did you just say? You know, it's like, of course, like something hilarious that was completely unintentional. Uh, but then, like later on, Jackie Chan says something that's supposed to be f- a funny one-liner, but it's it's like, I'm going to kick your ass back to Africa. You know, there's uh, they they their mm. banter back and forth is actually really really discomforting mm. to watch in retrospect. But it's also, uh, <laughs> you know, the the action the narrative is sort of um, just a way to, to advance this insane action from set piece to set piece. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and to that end, I think it's, it's kind of incredible at doing that because mm-hmm. you, know, you have Jackie Chan, you know, in the very first act of the film, he's, they get into this, this fight, you know, in, in the den of the triads. And by the end of that fight, he's hanging off of a bamboo construction site mm-hmm. Still fighting, and you know, he's he's doing his incredible, mm-hmm. um, you know, stunts, like up and down this bamboo structure. Mm-hmm. Um, and and Chris Tucker comes to rescue him, but of course, they both start hanging off of uh, this this one really long bamboo stick. They're just flying over the streets mm-hmm. of Kowloon. It's kind of thrilling. It's like police story level, oh, really? kind of like amazingness. Yeah. And I, I kind of don't remember that about mm. the film. So going back to it, it was kind of, it was really amazing to, to see all of that unfold. Um, mm. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's amazing that the two of them fight their way through Hong Kong. You know, they, they come up against the triads. Uh, mm. They come up against. Uh, this character played by, uh, Zhang Ziyi, She was coming right off of crouching tiger, hidden dragon. So her stock was really trading high at that, at that point. And I think yeah. they were trying to, um, have her start some kind of Hollywood career, mm-hmm. um, ushered in by Jackie Chan, mm-hmm. one of the only other Asian actors who managed to make that successful transition. Um, but she only has, I think three lines in English in the whole huh. movie. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Though maybe just three words, actually. Like here, eat some apple or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it, you know, through through their incredible journey to <laughs> L.A., where they find um, <laughs> they find uh, Don Cheadle in a Chinese restaurant, which is a, some kind of front for illegal uh-huh. gambling, and he speaks fluent Cantonese. Um, for some reason Uh to Vegas, you know, the film posits that, you know, that these two guys without knowing anything about the situation, having just gotten into all this trouble are able to, you know, fight their way into like winning this international crisis for the United States and for Hong Kong. Mm. Um, so there is all this chafing of the social and political and racial that's so much on the surface of the film, mm-hmm. but then, but then it's it's got this incredible almost false hope ending.
1: Mm. Yeah, Sounds like it really looks ahead too. Yeah, and
0: it's, it's crazy because clearly,
1: co-production.
0: They were just trying to go on vacation yeah. too. That's the sad part.
2: I know. Yeah, it's a tragic it's...
0: part of the whole thing.
2: It's
1: also interesting uh it's interesting thinking about um like the f- the fickleness of stardom or the or mm-hmm. you know the trends of stardom. Like everybody that you're naming who is in this movie is not doesn't really make movies regularly anymore or isn't considered like a top of the line star, you know. When at the time, yeah, you'd have a, a Jackie Chan, Chris Tucker movie that also had Zhang Ziyi and Don Cheadle. I mean that that mm-hmm. sounds very 2001 to me.
2: Yeah, yeah. totally. And everybody got paid like tens of millions of dollars to be in film. That was probably
1: a $20 million movie for
0: Chris Tucker. Yeah. Something like that.
2: Yeah. And I think he got a percentage of the box office as well. wow. Yeah. Oh, yeah, Jeremy Piven is randomly in there it. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He play at, you know, before they hit up the casino called the Red Dragon in Vegas, <laughs> He they, of course, have to make a stop at Gianni Versace to pick up, like, these uh, insanely gaudy suits. And Jeremy <laughs> Piven plays, like, a Queer Eye parody store clerk who outfits both of them.
1: Wow, all yeah. sorts of inappropriate, it sounds like. Yeah, Please.
2: you want to talk inappropriate, Tucker, at one point... Um, <laughs> He's telling Jackie Chan how Asian people seem to freak out at everything. And he's like, I know, I've seen Godzilla. I've seen you people yelling, uh, Hayaku, Hayaku, which is Japanese. <laughs> oh, <of course. laughs>
0: Jeez. Really? Um, so it's a culture clash.
2: It's a yeah, it is. It's an early odds culture aughts. clash, um, which on the one hand is, you know, makes you cringe a little bit when you watch it, but on the other hand, You look back and you're like, wow, these were the things that people were concerned about. These were more innocent times, Yeah, frankly.
0: Yeah, definitely. I also feel like Vegas is is just somewhat a very, you know, innocent, exotic place to to go to in in terms of a location.
2: Yeah, I I mean, mean, I think it was, you know, just the LA set piece, the the Vegas set piece. piece. They were all incredible. And um, this was also, you know, the sort of, height of studio kind of filmmaking of, Mm -hmm. of the nineties coming to a head in a way before all the writer strikes happened before, um, you know, the studio system completely broke down, you know, which is how they could afford to pay these, um, actors so much money. And also you see, um, the talent behind the screen, something like, um, the writer, Jeff Nathanson, went on the next year to write Spielberg's Catch Me If You Can. Oh. Um, he also wrote The Terminal in 2004. And then he wrote Rush Hour 3. You know, it's <laughs> like you, you could have a career back then that was like this. Right.
0: Back to basics.
2: Yeah. And then apparently for the music, uh, Brett Ratner, our auteur of the entire franchise <laughs> he wanted he, he was t- he was telling the composer that he really really wanted a symphonic capital P prestige score and in saying this he said you know Mozart didn't need a rhythm section for the for the piece to drive you know so,
1: <laughs> so who, did he, who did he get ultimately to write this the score, score?
2: Uh, Lalo Sch- Schifrin oh, oh. Huh. yeah yeah
0: Geez. We, we didn't know the riches we had when we had them
2: didn't exactly. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, nice. I mean, it's, it made $347 million, which the first one only made $244 million. So that,
0: is so, that, is that, is that domestic or global? That's global. Oh, global. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's still a ton of, ton of 2001 cash.
2: Yeah. It has Pre-ca- a
0: pre-crash cash.
2: It has this incredible massage parlor reveal. If you'll recall, there was this sort of, at one point, Chris Tucker and Jackie Chan hit up the massage parlor and there's a there's a wall that's sort of like a trompe l'oeil painted mm. with a tropical back, you know, landscape and the doors slide open. It's just a whole harem of scantily clad <laughs> massage girls. <laughs> and Tucker is like, I want this one and that one and that one. Oh, um, in his
0: charming way, he has.
2: Oh, Yes. <laughs> Yeah, and apparently that was that was an homage to Scarface,
0: and a Lubitsch film. I'm forgetting too. I'm sure.
1: <laughs> uh. The name of the massage parlor was the Lubitsch Touch.
2: <laughs> <laughs> but just um, I also think, about, you know, like there is, as inappropriate as it is, there must there there is maybe just a hair of reality to the way that people were experiencing. rapidly globalizing world Mm. you know people didn't understand each other people you know this was this was probably a way for people to try a starting point for people to try to you know see each other's differences and put them out there and I think that might have something to do with why my father loved the film so much Mm. you know he didn't really see the film as a misunderstanding of his culture even though like as soon as the titles came on and you had rush hour two and the two is in this like crazy dragon wanton font you know (laughs) but and that has no correlation to our culture whatsoever Mm -hmm. but he saw it as a sort of weird bridge you Mm -hmm. know he Mm -hmm. thought it was charming Mm -hmm. and um and tucker uh when he went on the jay leno tonight show he said that everywhere he went in Hong Kong, people mistook him for Kobe Bryant. So obviously the misunderstanding (laughs) went both ways, you know? So I think back to that film now Mm. as this sort of, uh, first step towards trying to learn about American pop culture Mm -hmm. filtered through certain signifiers of my own culture that were completely displaced.
1: Mm.
0: I I feel like I shouldn't, shouldn't follow that with, my film (laughs) so perhaps (laughs) but Michael would you like to uh
1: oh sure it's interesting um you know when you talk about films from earlier eras things come up that create themes um Mm. or unexpected threads that you weren't um you didn't necessarily have in mind but uh and I think this will be true of all the films but um there's something in all three of our films that make them probably um either Movies to exist or to have to come out now, or films that, if unleashed on our contemporary moment, would be subject to a lot of um, haranguing and um, debate. And um, mine is probably m- more of a, a, I think, widely beloved film, but. Um, I think the discussions around it would be different today. So the film that I picked was Hedwig and the Angry Inch, mm. which is, I, I and I think of this movie as sort of like, um, like you were saying, Elise, about Rush Hour 2 is like the vestiges of, a, of like 90s studio filmmaking where in Hedwig, I kind of think as this kind of natural culmination of the 90s queer cinema movement, which is that this is by the time this movie was made in 2001 um, this was I mean this was released by f- uh, you know Fine Line Features which was a subsidiary of new, new Line Rush Hour 2 Rush Hour 2 is New Line so they were but but they were you know as part of the same company it's you know it was the indie arm or whatever and um, Hedwig and the Angry Inch was it was not a Broadway show, show like it is now. Like it was revived a couple of years ago on Broadway, but it was never on Broadway. It was an underground show in mm. small clubs in downtown yeah. New York and it had a cult following. And it was an independently made film, but it was put up by the studio, John Cameron Mitchell, who created the character of Hedwig on stage, directed the film, wrote the screenplay, and starred in it. And nobody knew who he was. He, yeah. It was really just whatever cult following he had from his very small New York underground following so the movie itself could have just come off as sort of like a getting to see it would be like a consolation prize if you never got to see it on stage and i never got to see it on stage i never went which is unfortunate but so yeah could you could have felt like a film that was a recording of this great performance for posterity but it actually was a very interesting very well-made movie john cameron mitchell has gone on to make other films he'd made short bus and rabbit hole and he's actually pretty eclectic talented filmmaker so it's actually watching it again I was pleasantly surprised by just how the filmmaking holds up there's a certain rawness to it I remember I remembered it being sort of slick at the time but now looking back <laughs> it actually looks <laughs> raw compared to what yeah. things look like now right um, and for anyone who doesn't know it's a, it's a musical it follows this character named Hedwig who is a um, he at the beginning was um, a young boy in East Berlin who comes to the U.S. and is um, sort of coerced into having a sex change operation to make the journey and change his identity. Um, And what happens is the operation is botched, so he ends up with neither a penis nor a vagina, something in the middle, and this becomes the centerpiece of of now her um, musical act and the musical act is basically a failure and sh- she just plays at like buffets in middle America and these like horrible like neon lit yogurt shops and <laughs> the, the movie's able to actually really bring that out because of, you know, she's in real settings. So I think Hedwig's sort of become a, like a, a cult figure and an iconic figure but I do wonder what the conversation would be around the mm-hmm. character because the trans Um, the representation of Hedwig as a trans character is all couched in her being tragic. And that trans itself, that that it was not a choice that she made and she was sort of forced into it and now she's left with nothing and therefore she is this identityless person searching for her other half right. and there's such like a heavy dose of sadness and melancholy to the character it's also a very funny film of course but and the music is terrific and it's invigorating but i i actually um i'm curious what the conversation around that the character who is kind of made trans against yeah. his will and now she's Completely lost, and it's about her being lost. And the last shot is after she has a great final song, but uh, takes off all of the clo- all of her clothes and then just walks off in down this alley into the shadows and disappears. Mm-hmm. Um, so there isn't necessarily a, a, a happy ending per se for Hedwig, um, and it's it's sort of like a fascinating, complex character, um, and and if released in this much more complex moment, I don't know if it would have so easily become this arthouse smash that it did. Right. No, because the, that that kind of tragic tone is easily digestible in
0: some ways and, uh, and yeah, might not, might stick in the craw <laughs> now. I mean, yeah.
1: the movie gives Hedwig a lot of triumphant moments yeah. and they're yeah. always couched in song. And yeah. that's, of course, how musicals often function. Sad characters are able to kind of transcend their momentary um, sadness or melancholy through the music and the movie definitely highlights that. And, and, there are some really great songs. Wig in a box is this great empowerment theme mm. where she tries on all these different wigs and becomes these different characters and kind of forgets herself and becomes other people. But it really kind of left me, it left me feeling this time as like, as bereft as, as Hedwig is supposed to feel um, mm. like the kind of electricity of the filmmaking this time didn't kind of mitigate that it I was really kind of fascinated and perplexed by by the character and and I have to say like i've se- I, in the time since i've seen i saw the Broadway revival when Neil Patrick Harris played Hedwig oh wow and, <laughs> and he was very good though I do wish I had seen John Cameron Mitchell just because you know he created the role yeah. but i really i i do wonder um I wonder what Hedwig kind of means now, and it's something that i'm yeah, I'm kind of struggling the,
2: with. When the film opens, Hedwig is sunbathing on a piece of the Berlin Wall, which had just fallen. Right. I think about that about that film, and you know, to your point about what would the sort of trans aspect of Hedwig's identity signify today culturally, um, I think it would be something very different because her body it, it becomes a symbol of the search for one's national identity Mm -hmm. in a city where, you know, the divide had, like, completely been erased. You know, I think in the songs, Hedwig often talks about, you know, East and West coming together, which was supposed to be a very joyful thing, but actually Mm -hmm. her whole family lost the sense of who they are. And the search for identity... Um, you you can also see it when Hedwig listens to the radio with his head in the in the, in the oven, listening to American and British rock music and pop music.
1: Yeah, I think I mean the first line of the film, which is also the first song in the show, is "I'm the new Berlin Wall, baby. Why don't you try to tear? Don't try and tear me down."
2: Exactly. So is, yeah. Is,
1: yeah, she's always kind of advocating strength mm-hmm. of bringing these two halves together, East and West, man and woman but is never able to actually bridge the gap, right? That's the kind of yeah, tragedy of it. Yeah, mm-hmm.
2: the, it's, it's a bit of a quixotic fantasy that one can both be mm. bridge and wall at the same time. Right. And I think, nice. you know, throughout the film, that sort of creates the tension of Hedwig's identity. And, and also the, the other person, the other character in the band, who is um, Yitzhak, Right. Yeah, played By Miriam Shore. Right. She's amazing. amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, who just, uh, Miriam Shore plays a male character who all he wants to do is be female. And Hedwig sort of displaces her own anger of having this. Um, inch the titular inch on miriam shore's character by not allowing her to put on any of the wigs and not allowing her to um inhabit this fantasy identity that you know she's always wanted until the very end
1: mm-hmm. and, and and just one one more thing yeah um is that because we're talking about it as a summer movie which is interesting i remember, I remember the experience of seeing it Um, in the theater and it was playing at the multiplex, the United, what was a United artists multiplex on 14th street. Um, And with this, in a huge room completely sold out and the, the, just the energy in that room and the excitement that people had around seeing this film, the applause after every Mm -hmm. song was really inspiring and, and um, something I hadn't really been through before. Like at that, it really felt like, wow, this, this is kind of like the, End point of the new queer cinema right yeah. it's it, it's not really that mainstream a movie when you think about it but it was reaching larger audiences yeah. and with some pretty for the time I thought difficult material yeah so that was a, that was a really great experience
2: there's one there's one image from the film that is so indelible which is the bag of uh, gummy bears from Germany, and they're called Gumi Bears, And they they completely melted into each other, and it was, like, in this sweaty plastic bag. And to me, that is just a perfect metaphor for, like, humanity, basically. <laughs> Especially humanity in New York in the summer.
0: We're just a bunch of sweaty gummy bears stuck exactly. together in a plastic bag. Exactly. I love it. You know, it's a very grim vision. I feel pretty <laughs> silly following uh, both of your, you know eloquent and profound recalls of films with what I chose. Let's just say it chose me. How about if I say that? Um, I mean, you know, I too was watching a variety of films in the summer of 2001. And uh, one of those films I remember going with a group uh, was Pootie Tang. Uh, Directed by? Directed by. (laughs) It only gets better, dear readers. Uh, Directed by well, let's say nominally directed by Louis C.K., because uh, this movie, to an extent, has the feel, I mean, it had the feel then, and, and, and I'm not sure it's, uh, I'm, I think the stitches still kind of show now, of a film that's, like someone set it on course for about fifteen minutes, and then just kind of walked away, and just just it, you know it just hits one iceberg after another. Um, after that, uh, Pootie Tang, as everyone already, I hardly need to recap the plot since I know everyone knows this movie uh, very well. Um, it it's about a character called Pootie Tang. It actually starts with a frame of a. That he he's the star of a movie about himself, he's a character who's just uh I guess the coolest guy around, and then the whole joke of the movie is that in fact, uh, you know all his trappings and his semi incomprehensible speech are extremely cool to everyone in the movie but look complete ridiculous to us, uh you know, the audience of the comedy played by Lance Crowther actually uh, you know it's it kind of epitomizes like a certain type of I don't know, semi-insider, would-be cult TV writer, comedy writer, besotted output. Of, I don't know of late '90s, early. I mean, I mean, half-baked, sort of around the same time around there. It's, um, something that maybe if you went to a lot of improv shows, you would you would know about. Or um,
1: Ready got fingered was also at summer. ready got fingered. Yeah,
0: another thing that's just like just like, you know, in such a contorted way, like deep into like a would-be twisted, like if only they let me put this on TV kind of mind or thinking. Um, and, you know, a lot of the writing is kind of totally absurdist and funny in the beginning of Louis C.K. Uh, oh, Jesus, in the beginning of Foodie Tank. And Louis C.K. was funny for a while until uh, the plot twist, um, which was not a twist for many people. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. It's he's 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 just you know he's like a crime fighting completely suave guy who gets all the ladies. Um, and the beginning is you know they describe how he got his his superpower, which is that he has a belt that he can just you know subdue anyone with. He got it from his dad, who, was a, who his dad, who is played by Chris Rock, who in turn plays his his like one of his two close friends as an adult Pootie Tang, and also plays a number of other roles, including a DJ, and also does the voiceover for the film. <laughs> Uh, Chris Rock, uh, I got to hand it to him, really just went all out to try to, you know, get this movie to the finish line. Um, and I, I hardly know what to say about it. It's that, you know, I remember watching it. Uh, let me go back to the circumstances of when I watched it, just so I can complete the total mortification going on right now. Um, I watched it, um, you know, it was two, I guess 2001. Is that what we agreed this was? Uh <laughs> Yes, this would be the summer of two thousand one. <laughs> summer of two thousand one, and I had been taking classes at the Upright Citizens Brigade, UCB. Oh. Uh, I mean, had been taken. I think I took one or
1: two. Talk about uh, a career shift.
0: Well, you know, I thought I could make it big. No, it was a fun. It was a lot of fun. Um, and I don't know. I did improv in college. It was a lot of fun then. So I thought it was fun in college. Wouldn't it be fun if I if I tried some of it afterwards? And the people who I took the class with were all wonderful and, and fun and funny. Um, and that was also the time when I guess it was sort of a little bit new. UCB is a phenomenon in, I don't know, 99, 2000, 2001. Like ASCAP Brigade was this sort of semi-hot ticket, although maybe less so already by 2001. Uh, you know, Amy Poehler, uh, you know, and and, and, the, and the whole, you know, Tina Fey would sh- show up and it, it was just kind of this thing so you know, I, I took a class there, not not knowing any better, and we went to see this movie because we were all you know comedy enthusiasts, um, and thought, oh look, a, a movie directed by Louis C.K. starring Chris Rock. Um, this sounds very funny. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's it's it's. Uh, I I, wa- I I should I should single out uh, Wanda Sykes, who plays kind of uh, kind of Pootie's savior figure, I would say. Uh, And she's very funny, especially as she's called on for minutes upon minutes of filler where she's she's just kind of grinding or dancing. Just kind of like the thing where you're cutting between two scenes and and she'll just be dancing for a while. I swear there's at least, she had to to like do about 10 minutes of that to to fill out the film, which is already only 81 minutes. About, I'm going to say approaching 10 minutes at the end is credits and outtakes, and along the way, just has a very leisurely way of getting through the story of Puty Tang's fall. It's a corporate sellout movie. Um, uh, I think Robert Vaughn plays a corporate villain uh, who, you know, gets pootie Tang to 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 sign a contract. You know, until th- until then, Puty Tang is a big hero to everyone. Um, but after he signs a contract, he's just a mess. Um, and I I don't know. <laughs> throw me, throw me a life preserver. <laughs> I, I don't know. Can I entertain any questions? Because I watched the damn thing. Or well,
2: did you find it funny? I did find parts of it, it, it,
0: it parts of it funny. A, a lot of it is just kind of like absurd humor. Just you know, Pootie re- Tang records his biggest hit, which is him just being silent, uh, and everyone listens to it and like rocks out to it. And it's one of those like it's it's like really stupid but also kind of <laughs> funny.
1: So yeah. I'm kind of fascinated Michael uh, Yes, another question. <laughs> I was just going to say uh, I'm kind of fascinated by the non-Louis the show Louis, the non-Louis career Lucy C.K. Is everything else he's ever done is this kind of hidden or <laughs> kind of, you know, bad object thing that needs to be kind of either dismissed or shelved. <laughs> I mean, Hootie yeah. Tang obviously got released, but it's also kind of kind of like considered by most people like a film modi and it's kind of forgotten and yeah. a little unknown and then of course he had a tv show called called Lucky Louie that was canceled and of course I love you daddy from last year which is, i probably will never see the light of day um, yeah. nor
0: does nor does Chloe Moretz apparently want it to ever see the light of day she, I'm sure she thinks n- it should be destroyed i think she said in an interview or something similar <laughs>
1: it should be destroyed huh um, well there's a there's a lot of people in that film I mean, maybe they all maybe they all feel the same way yeah um, this is
0: definitely a big topic that they actually we'll probably have as a as an episode in, in and in a forthcoming podcast. Yeah, it's it's film. It's definitely Modi. It's very Modi. Uh, just some very you know era specific references that I want to highlight. Uh, it opens with a faux episode of the Bob Costas show. Uh, you know, Late Show. I think it was just called Later. Am I right? I think it was just called Later. Um, there is a Bullet Time parody since this comes. Uh, you know, two or three years after uh, The Matrix, they caught up with a bullet-time parody. There were a lot of bullet-time parodies. <laughs> yep, yep. Yeah, This one got its in. Um, shot by Willy Currant. Um, and um,
1: I don't know. What else to say about this? Look forward to the upcoming film comment cover story. Oh, jeez. Looking back at Puddy.
0: Yeah. Time. Oh, did I mention David Cross is in blackface in part of it? You did wow. not. I did
1: not. Uh, yeah. Uh, that happens.
0: Um, yeah, I, I mean, this is a movie we all walked out of pretty depressed. I do remember <laughs> Um Yeah, it couldn't even enjoy it,
1: uh, ironically.
0: The problem is that it is, there was is funny stuff, funny lines.
1: So uncomfortable then, uncomfortable now. Yeah. The but, culture hasn't caught up with the No, movie. I mean,
0: uncomfortable for more than a few reasons now, um, uncomfortable for several reasons then, um, and then just... You know, forgive me for the mindless entertainment we were hoping to have. It didn't even supply us of that at the time. Um, I should clarify, David Cross is in blackface because he's he's impersonating Pootie Tang in the movie. That Not to mitigate it, I'm just describing <laughs> what happens. So that's, that's what I saw
1: September 2001. I actually wanted to kind of like to finish off the, the summer and the conversation about 2001. One thing that I, I always remember... Um, that was certainly a definitive end to the summer and a definitive end to a lot of things. The morning of 9-11, this is a strange little New York film anecdote that probably doesn't have any, um, it's probably not recorded anywhere. The United Artists Theater that I saw Hedwig at opened up its theaters for free to everyone. So uh, what happened was, if you were kind of below Fourteenth Street, as I was living that year or that summer, I got an apartment on um, Saint Mark's, so in the in the village, you couldn't go past certain areas. So they cordoned them off. They were it was almost like a quarantine, and you couldn't get through them without showing identification. It was really you couldn't get in certain subways. So we were kind of all trapped in certain areas of Manhattan, and the United Artists Theater on Fourteenth Street. Every movie was free all day, and I forget. I think they only were able to advertise by putting a note up on the on the door. But by by like two or three p.m., I think they might have done it for a couple of days. By two or three p.m., it was just packed with people who just needed to get somewhere and try to forget what was going on. This might have been the day after, actually. It was the day after. We were all too we were that day. We were far too shell shocked to to go any. We were mm. kind of just. Huddled and talking all, all day, um, but then I remember going in and just I remember Apocalypse Now Redux was playing, which is a very strange choice at the time. But that was not one thing that people were sitting. It just happened watching. to be Definitely still not. playing in the Planet of the Apes, yeah. the Tim Burton Planet of the Apes. Oh, no, I saw that in the summer too. Jeepers Creepers, which was a really yeah. depressing and creepy movie to to watch at that time. Um, but it was such a strange moment, and I remember seeing a lot of homeless people going to to kind of. They were getting free popcorn and drinks too. It was just the theater just opened up to everybody, and there was this real sense of community and everyone kind of coming together um, over movies and um, trying their best. I forget what was going on, but that that is just stamped yeah. in my memory. I think that's a lovely way for us
0: to end. <laughs> so I guess we'll end there uh, with our time travel trip to 2001 completed. Hopefully, we'll come back intact um, and wait for the other shoe to drop. Whether whatever that will be. So, there we have it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. have been listening to the Film Comment Podcast with music by Greg Einji. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. Film Comment is a bi-monthly magazine published by the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has featured in-depth features, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, arthouse, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com to purchase a print or digital subscription to Film Comment. Or check out our app available on Android, iOS, or Kindle.